Autumn presents How two Mississippi college students fell in love and decided to join a terrorist group. Written by Emma Green The day she left to join the Islamic State, Jalen Young took a floral backpack with clothes, craft supplies, and a scrapbook. Mohammed Daklala, whose friends call him Mo, packed a bar of soap, grey sweats, and a pack of Starburst minis. She was organised. Her wallet held bank cards and insurance cards, plus a sonic receipt tucked inside. He loved video games. His only T-shirt featured the robots of Portal 2. On that hot August day, they were headed to Turkey, on their way to Syria. Mo, 22, had graduated from Mississippi State University in Starkville a few months earlier in the spring of 2015, and had been accepted into a psychology master's program there for the fall. He has a friendly, slightly dorky demeanour in conversation, ever the goofy baby brother of an expressive Muslim family. Jalen, just turned 20, was a sophomore in chemistry, working in a lab on nanoparticles. High school friends described the tiny Vicksburg native as a spunky, smart robotics chick from a strict black family, with a Navy veteran and police officer for a father and a school superintendent for a mother. The two started dating in November 2014. She converted just a few months later. By June, they had wed in an Islamic ceremony, although they never obtained a marriage license. Mo and Jaylin were both academically talented, but neither planned to return to school. God willing, Jaylin allegedly told their online recruiter, they would be overseas by summer's end. The weeks dragged on. They applied for passports, waiting impatiently for them to arrive by mail. Mo wondered whether they'd be assigned a city or could pick one. She wanted to be a medic. He yearned to be a fighter. They asked questions about religion classes and wondered if they would be tested on their knowledge of Islam. She was nervous about travelling, she allegedly told her recruiter. She had never been outside the United States. He asked about basic training and whether ISIS follows Islamic law. I am not familiar with Sharia, he allegedly told the recruiter. I am excited about coming, but I feel I won't know what all I will be doing. Finally, it was time to leave. They used her mom's credit card to buy tickets on Delta, with a connection in Amsterdam. She carried $367.50, more than enough for a taxi or train to the famous Blue Mosque in Istanbul, where they planned to meet their recruiter. They would stand out, she wrote, because of her big, bushy, curly hair. But she asked the recruiter to bring a headscarf for her to wear during the rest of their journey. She was ashamed to go uncovered, but scared to wear a hijab while travelling for fear of drawing attention to herself. Early on a Saturday morning, they drove about half an hour to Columbus, Mississippi, expecting little security trouble at their small regional airport as they departed for their new life. They were arrested while preparing to board their flight. Jalen and Mo weren't actually talking to ISIS recruiters. Their contacts had been undercover FBI employees the whole time. Extremist ideas have never been easier to access. Propaganda videos like the ones Jalen and Mo were watching around the spring of 2015 are on YouTube. Extremist communities can be found through Twitter and Facebook. Pseudonymous accounts can be opened with just a few clicks. The vast majority of people who watch and read propaganda 
never act on it. But some begin to believe that the American media offer only a thick cloud of falsehood about ISIS, as Jalen put it. In the past three years, the FBI has invested significant resources in tracking and arresting these ISIS sympathizers in the United States. Between March 2014 and April 2017, 125 people have been charged with ISIS-related crimes. But in February 2015, FBI Director James Comey said there were terrorism investigations happening in all 50 states, and later that year, he said more than 900 were open. ISIS, said Comey, is putting out a siren song through their slick propaganda through social media that goes like this. Troubled soul, come to the caliphate. You will live a life of glory. These are the apocalyptic end times. You will find a life of meaning here, fighting for our so-called caliphate. And if you can't come, kill somebody where you are. The FBI closely monitors online communities that discuss ISIS, at times running so many undercover accounts that agents end up investigating one another. An FBI policy guide, obtained and published by The Intercept, notes that online investigations have previously resulted in resources being wasted by investigating or collecting on FBI online identities or employees working undercover. The Bureau also takes tips from a network of sources from security firms to random vigilantes who monitor these communities. The small group of people who have been arrested on ISIS-related charges are an idiosyncratic bunch. They come from a range of socio-economic backgrounds, and each case is distinctive. But many do share important traits with Mo and Jalen. According to the Centre on National Security at Fordham University's School of Law, their median age is 25. Three-quarters are American citizens. Nine out of ten are male. Over one-third are converts to Islam. Although roughly a quarter of cases have involved people of Arab descent like Mo, whose father is Palestinian, most come from other ethnic backgrounds, including African-Americans like Jalen. Few have criminal backgrounds. Many live with their parents. And roughly 90% of cases involve social media, sometimes including online conversation with a recruiter, either real or undercover. A recent court case shows that activity on Twitter may now be all it takes to get arrested on ISIS-related charges. In February 2016, for example, a Missouri woman was arrested for allegedly retweeting pro-ISIS solicitations of violence against U.S. government personnel. She was charged with making threats across state lines, a novel approach to prosecution in terrorism cases. But the plurality of prosecutions are brought and closed on one charge, conspiracy to provide material support to ISIS. These are cases of people caught on the verge of action, like Jaylin and Moe, at the airport or with plane tickets ready in hand. While a handful of cases have involved weapons charges, most don't. These lonely, isolated admirers of the caliphate hope to join their allies abroad. ISIS sympathizers pose a terrifying dilemma for law enforcement officials who have to sift through droves of online aliases engaged with propaganda whose owners might live in America or abroad to identify people who credibly wish to harm the United States. The accounts may not be accessible because of encryption, the FBI agents working the Mississippi case told me, and leads can go dark. Americans expect their government to prevent violence before it happens – their shared national nightmare is the plot that goes undiscovered before an attack or the known sympathizer who gets away. 
Faced with such high stakes and uncertainty, the FBI is left to teeter between catching people before they act and walking along with them until they violate the law. The most remarkable thing about Jalen and Moe is that theirs was a largely straightforward case. In less than three months, the FBI had crafted a powerful indictment against them. Theoretically, when the Bureau comes across two kids like Jalen and Moe, lost, in love and grasping toward a dark future, agents could try to set them on another path, reaching out to their families and communities. In reality, though, that's not what the country has asked them to do. Jalen was good at everything in high school. Yearbook photos show her in cheerleading, robotics, and a competitive singing group. She was nerdy enough to join the National Honor Society and Mu Alpha Theta, the math club, but cool enough to be on the homecoming court twice. The jolliest junior of Vicksburg's Warren Central High School was widely liked and friends with everyone from the band kids to the choir kids to the redneck country kids, said her classmate Katie Martin. Even now, teachers speak about Jalen in the shorthand of a glowing report card. Talk about a wonderful student. She stands out in my mind as one of the top students I've ever taught, said Terry Volor, who teaches chemistry and history. She was one of those charismatic, outgoing, fun-loving cheerleader types with a brain. That's a very unusual combination. Jalen attended Triumph Church, where her mum, Benita, teaches Sunday school. The pastor, Mike Fields, remembers her as a precious, well-mannered girl. Jalen declined a request for an interview, and although I spoke with her parents in person, they did not respond to requests for help with fact-checking. Coverage of Jalen's case focused on her cheerleading and popularity, but she was most involved with robotics. Her small group, Team 456, would meet at a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers facility, spending hours tinkering with their machines. They attended major competitions, where they met famous astronauts and engineers. Jalen even met Phil Bryant, the Mississippi governor, at a competition once. He crashed our robot into a pillar, Will Ballard, one of Jalen's teammates, said. Although Jalen had a lot of friends, I don't really remember a lot of people going over to her house, ever said Corrie Schweitzer, another robotics teammate. Her parents were strict, he said. Early curfews, frequent phone calls, no offering rides to other kids. Jalen floated among friend groups, never really landing with one. A lot of times she seemed almost lonely, Schweitzer said. While Jalen and her sister, Kaylin, were growing up, Benita was often the only one at home. Their dad, Leonce, is a police officer in Vicksburg who served as a petty officer in the Navy. He did more than a dozen tours of duty abroad, including in Iraq and Afghanistan. Gone for months at a time, he missed Jalen's first days of school, special events, and high school graduation. She begged me not to go, Leonce said of Jalen in court, but I had a moral obligation to my country. Benita seemed to regret being so tough on her daughters. It was... Just me and my two girls, she testified. I had to grow some pretty thick skin to be that strong person because Dad wasn't there. The girls argued a lot. I'm sorry most of our years were spent fighting and yelling, cursing at one another, Jalen wrote in a letter to her sister. We were both very strong characters. The things we thought we disliked in each other were only things we disliked in ourselves. Jalen was in junior high the first time Benita noticed the cuts. 
five or six razor scars visible on her legs. Benita recalled in court that she scolded Jaylin because they looked intentional, but she didn't press the issue. Time went on, and Benita thought everything was fine. But looking back, she said, she saw that moment as an early sign that Jaylin was struggling. Jaylin quit the cheer squad her senior year. Leonce told me she was focusing on academics, and Benita testified in court that Jaylin had been bullied by other girls. By that time, Jaylin only had one real close friend, Benita said, likely referring to Kimberly Melton, the daughter of one of the robotics coaches. That September, Kimberly died accidentally after taking cold meds, one of the other robotics coaches wrote on a team message board. She aspirated her own vomit, he wrote, and developed a lung infection. After that, Jalen felt like even more of a loner, her mum said in court. Everyone else saw her as charmed, but she thought a lot of people disliked her. Jalen graduated from Warren Central in 2013 and headed three hours north to Mississippi State University. Like a lot of college freshmen, she slowly fell out of touch with people back home. According to friends, Jalen started hanging out with a group of largely Asian American and international students. Jalen used to be one of the sweetest girls I know, said one of those friends, Inho Yoon, a Korean student two years above her at MSU. Friendly and kind. The second half of Jalen's freshman year brought big changes. She expressed interest in finding a religion that fit her, a friend told me, and started researching Hinduism and Buddhism. At the end of the semester, she got an apartment, but Ballard said she kept it a secret from her parents. That spring, she also started dating Matthew, a mechanical engineering student a few years older than her from the Mississippi Delta. They had a rocky relationship and took a break over the summer when he left the country to travel in Asia, but when she came back to school that August, she spent a lot of time hanging out with Matthew and his friends, including Marl. The Daklala family is well-known and well-liked in Starkville, where they've lived for nearly two decades. Their small house sits on Herbert Street across from the Islamic Center, and Odah Daklala, Mo's dad, led prayers there for many years. Lisa, Mo's mum, used to be known as the town hummus lady, in honor of the spreads she sold at the farmer's market and at the family's restaurant, Shahrazad's. Oda came to the United States as a teenager and ended up at Ole Miss for grad school. Lisa grew up in New Jersey in a white Christian family. She converted to Islam after she met Oda and brought her son from a previous marriage, Donovan, to live with them. Oda and Lisa had three kids together. Salah, the oldest, just finished medical school, and Abdullah, the middle brother, earned his doctorate from Mississippi State. Mo is the youngest. The Starkville native practiced Taekwondo and graduated high school with a 4.0 GPA. He also helped his parents out. Jane Harmon, a family friend, said she spent long hours with Mo painting and decorating Shahrazad's when he was a kid. He never complained, said Sammy Austin, Harmon's sister. His manner was always peaceful. Mo started college in the fall of 2011, where he studied computer engineering and psychology. He fell in with a nerdy crew who liked to play board games and video games. He participated in the Muslim Students Association, although not as actively as his brothers. Mo would volunteer from time to time, said the faculty advisor, Rani Sullivan, and if there was food, Mo was going to be there. Mo's brothers would study the Quran. They prayed regularly and fasted. 
that while Mo went through the motions of religious ritual, he told me in a letter, he was not particularly devout. I was taking things for granted, he wrote, blindly following the faith. Oda, however, pushed the boys to be more religious. He was disappointed with their level of devotion to Islam. They were praying, but not focusing, maybe, in their prayers, he told me. And he could get particularly aggressive with Mo, friends and family said. One by one, the Daklala brothers moved out of the house, leaving Mo alone with his parents. Mo felt pressure to please Oda, who wanted him to get married and get into grad school, he told me. I was the only one at home, trying to take care of my parents and go through college. Lisa and Oda fought a lot. Family friends said the couple had grown distant and often yelled at each other. Mo describes himself as a mama's boy, but his mother was sometimes checked out, family friends said. She was also a bit of a prepper, distrustful of mainstream media and terrified that the economy would fail and society would fall apart. She kept a month's supply of food on hand, for example, and wanted to have gallon jugs stored in case something happened to the water supply. Mo is the kind of guy who's awkward and shy around girls. At the start of his senior year in the fall of 2014, he told friends he had a crush on someone he knew from the gym, but he gave up after a few weeks of fruitless flirting. And that's when he started spending more time with Jaylin. Matthew's friends thought Jaylin was bad news. They said she was manipulative, demanding and pushy. But Mo didn't think they were being fair. As the weather got colder and she and Matthew started fighting, Mo was there to listen. They started hanging out, first in groups, then one-on-one. When Matthew found out they were spending so much time together, he was shocked and betrayed. He and Jalyn broke up, and in November 2014, she and Mo started dating. From the beginning, Mo and Jalyn were isolated. Mo's friends disapproved of the way the two got together and became less eager to hang out. Friends say Mo had to ask Jalyn's permission to go out and see people, and she would get mad when he stayed out late without telling her. When the couple would hang out with Mo's brother, Abdullah, they would be to themselves, sitting in a corner, said Jonathan Dobbs, one of Abdullah's close friends. Mo would be on his laptop playing games. Meanwhile, Jalyn started getting interested in Islam. During her sentencing hearing, Jalyn claimed Mo introduced her to the religion, although prosecutors alleged elsewhere that she had been interested in converting before they started dating. She said the Shahada, the Muslim profession of faith, around March 2015 at Mo's parents' house. He taught her what he knew, how to pray, how to recite the Quran in Arabic. She traded shorts and tank tops for modest skirts and dresses. She started covering her head, first with cloth in rich purple and green, and later only in black. Mo was happy she had converted to Islam, he told friends. Oda also really wanted him to marry a Muslim. When Jalyn converted, Oda told me, he cried with joy. Despite their apparent happiness, Jalyn and Mo each felt under pressure. She was working in a chemistry lab and planning to take the MCAT. Mum, I just don't think I can do it, Jalyn said during a phone call one night with Benita. It's too much. She had been anxious, she testified in court, and often contemplated suicide. Benita, thinking she was just going through a normal college experience, didn't have a lot of sympathy. Tough up, Jalyn, she thought. Meanwhile, Mo felt lost. He was about to graduate and had the option of getting a master's in psychology at Mississippi State, but he didn't really want to pursue it. 
Friends observed that Mo gained weight and appeared tired and depressed. Mo told me he felt guilty for making mistakes in his love life. No more letting someone run my life by telling what's right and wrong, he said. He asked family for advice on how to make Jaylin happy and keep the relationship going. Many were surprised when they married in early June of 2015. Odar had been hoping to pick Mo's bride himself, dreaming of someone tall. While he thought Jalen was too short for Mo, he told me, he eventually let up and consented to the match. Members of the Starkville Muslim community were invited to their nikah at Odar's house, but many declined. It was all a bit fishy, and Abdullah and many of the other brothers at the masjid, or mosque, knew it, said Dobbs. Most folks in the community didn't know who Jalen was. She had rarely attended Muslim student association events at school, let alone prayers at the mosque. There was no contract, no clergy, no agreement of witnesses, Dobbs said. We were told the day of, and that it would be a potluck dinner. But the couple's closest friends and family didn't understand what was really going on in their relationship. Over the course of roughly three months, they had slowly become fascinated by ISIS. That spring, it's not clear exactly when or why, Jaylin started watching videos featuring Anjem Chowdhury, the British extremist imprisoned in 2016 for swearing an oath of allegiance to the Islamic State. Friends say she started asking questions about Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, and circulated an article claiming Muslims were supposed to pledge allegiance to the caliphate. She downloaded at least one issue of Dabiq, ISIS's online propaganda magazine. Mo joined in. He allegedly downloaded the organization's guide to making the trip overseas and started watching the videos with Jalen. In one clip the couple viewed, Isis threw a man, presumed to be gay, from the roof of a building. Jalen's online presence transformed. Gone was the short-skirted cheerleader of her high school yearbook photos. Her Facebook profile showed two women in hijabs. Her Twitter page allegedly referred to the handle at one underscore modest underscore woman, perhaps her or her recruiter. I just want to be there, unhappy face emoji, hashtag IS, she wrote. Online, Mo allegedly referred to her by an Arabic name, presumably adopted as a nom de guerre, Amina, meaning trustworthy. Jalin began avoiding calls and texts from her family and later took down Posters of my favourite shows and music artists, she testified. The Mississippi teen had always loved heavy metal. On May 13th, around the time of Moe's college graduation, the FBI made its first publicly known contact with Jaylin online. A person using her account had expressed a desire to travel to ISIL territory, the FBI noted, using the government's term for the Islamic State, and had tweeted and retweeted links to ISIL propaganda. Over the next 13 weeks, at least two undercover employees exchanged frequent messages with Jaylin and Mo on social media. Details from court documents submitted by the FBI allege Jaylin and Mo talked about ISIS in disturbingly casual ways, a sign either that they were fully aware of what they were getting themselves into or that they were living in a total state of unreality. Some of Jaylin's comments sound like a sorority girl planning her dream home, rather than a terrorist plotting destruction. God willing, she told an undercover FBI employee, she would soon be overseas where she could raise little dowler cubs. As innocent and maternal as that may sound, 
it may also reveal the extent of her commitment. ISIS propaganda has featured children executing prisoners in the style of a video game and refers to boys groomed to be fighters as cubs. There were signs that Jalen understood the horrific violence of the group she longed to join. After a sailor and four marines were murdered in July in Chattanooga, Tennessee, she celebrated. Praise be to God, she said. The numbers of supporters are growing. In fact, the pair seemed frustrated about the way ISIS was portrayed in the United States, including stories about ISIS taking sex slaves. I cannot wait to get to Dawla so I can be amongst my brothers and sisters under the protection of Allah, Jalin allegedly said. Mo said he wanted to be a mujahid, or soldier engaged in jihad. I am willing to fight, he allegedly wrote. I want to be taught what it really means to have a heart in battle. In letters written to their families before they left, Jalin and Mo didn't mention anything about ISIS, distrust of American media, or elation about the slaughter of Marines. Instead, they talked about hopelessness. I feel I was not going to make anything life-changing in the future, Mo wrote to his parents. Making changes here in America feels pointless to me, as people in my academic field hate change. He never signed his offer letter from MSU's grad program, he said. I did not want you to be responsible for any financial debt after I had left. He drew a little heart next to his signature, scrawled in sideways, boyish letters. I couldn't cut it here, Jalen wrote in neat cursive to her parents and sister. I have failed you and I can't handle the shame. Please forget me. I'm not coming back. I couldn't if I wanted to. She claimed to have been planning her escape for almost a year, ever since things went south. It's unclear what she was referring to, perhaps family trouble or academic stress. In a separate letter, Jaylin encouraged her sister Kaylin to go on mission trips and protect the environment. Don't wait until you start to lose hope and begin to think there is no point in helping anyone at all, like I did, Jaylin wrote. That was a dark place and I never want that for you. She asked her sister to treat their parents well. When you realize what they gave up so that we could have food in our mouths and clothes on our backs, you would feel just as ashamed as I do, she wrote. I would do anything to take back any grief I had given them and to just hug them again. Jalen and Mo both confessed in their letters and after the FBI arrested them at the airport. Both instructed their families not to look for them, but seemed aware that their parents might contact law enforcement anyways. Jalen emphasized that their parents weren't involved as though to preempt any charges of complicity. They likely expected their families would find the notes after they were long gone, but the FBI arrested the pair at the airport early in the morning. In the letter to her family, Jalen confessed, It was all my planning. I found the contacts, made arrangements, planned the departure, she said. I am guilty of what you soon will find out. She never talked about Mo as a husband or boyfriend. His mum and dad had taken her in and acted as her Starkville parents, she said, so she repaid them by allowing their son to come with me. He wanted to, she added. As she told the authorities in a separate letter, she left home fully aware of the consequences of my actions should I be caught. It's difficult to establish how exactly the FBI identifies terrorism suspects. One way could be that they have a source, said Jeffrey Ringel, a 21-year veteran of the Bureau, now with the Sufan Group, a security-focused consulting firm. 
When they find potential targets online, they give the information to the FBI. Hey, somebody new just came onto this website. This is their Twitter handle. This is their email address, Ringel said. Alternatively, agents might monitor social media or known recruiting sites themselves. In this case, the FBI says, Twitter was the way in. Jalen was making open, public comments on social media about her support and willingness to join ISIS, said Christopher Fries, the special agent in charge of the Jackson, Mississippi division of the FBI. It's not as if we are trolling or out there just looking for people to open cases on. Even non-law enforcement were tracking her. We watched her account for quite a while, said Seamus Hughes, the deputy director of the program on extremism at George Washington University. She popped up on our radar pretty easily. As the FBI talked to Jay Lynn and Mo, they would have been looking for a few specific signs of action, Hughes said. Assume for a second Jay Lynn doesn't get to the airport or doesn't buy the tickets. Then the FBI is in a bit of a predicament about what to do next, he said. What tripped her up was the overt act of trying to travel. Many ISIS-related cases in the United States involve people who want to go overseas and only get as far as the airport. But some don't even manage that. They are arrested for facilitating others' travel or simply purchasing a plane ticket. The Youngs and the Dakhlalas first realised their children were in serious trouble when the FBI came knocking. Oda thought the agents were pulling my foot, he said. He had been asleep and Lisa was at the local farmer's market. He went to the door groggy but brightened when he saw who it was. He had befriended a handful of FBI agents over the years, and he and his wife cooked for a couple of these men often enough that they would request certain lamb dishes. "'I'm glad you're here, man. Come on,' he said. But the officers had only come as a courtesy to break the news of the case. "'Oda, we are on an official visit,' they replied. Oda eventually came to feel that it was nice of them to come along with these FBI agents that I did not know, he told me. But initially, he felt betrayed. Three hours west in Vicksburg, agents paid the Youngs a similar visit. They came here for thirty-five, forty minutes, told us she was being charged with conspiring to be a medic or something, and they left, Leonce told me. He claims he didn't get any help from the Navy or the Vicksburg Police Department where he works. They don't care, he said. As Jaylin's and Moe's parents tried to process what was happening, they faced an enormous challenge. Finding and affording a defence attorney capable of representing a client facing terrorism charges. Across the United States, just over 500 Al-Qaeda and ISIS cases have been brought since 9-11. Over time, the federal prosecutors who work terrorism cases have gotten good at it, in part because the government has dedicated substantial resources to developing their skills. The Department of Justice even created a division for sharing best practices but defence attorneys experienced in ISIS cases are hard to come by, especially in Mississippi. Moe's case was handled by Greg Park, a court-appointed assistant federal public defender with a quiet, deep voice. He said the attorneys in his office have been trained on how to handle these kinds of charges, but he also sought help. I did reach out to other attorneys throughout the cases who have handled similar cases and discussed their approach and the results they received, he said and I did an abundance of research on my own. Meanwhile, Jaylin switched attorneys a few weeks into her case. She went through the initial stages with a court-appointed attorney, Ken Coglin, who runs a private practice in Oxford. But soon her father approached Dennis C. Sweet III, 
a high-profile lawyer in Jackson. Sweet implied in court that he took the case as a favour to Leon's. Sweet did not return multiple requests for an interview for this story. Jalen's father now seems to feel they were at a disadvantage. If I had money, Leonce told me, she wouldn't have gotten twelve years. Early in March 2016, Mo entered a guilty plea. Prosecutors dropped all charges besides conspiracy to provide material support to ISIS. Since his arrest, Mo had cooperated with them, including giving them Jaylin's letters, hundreds of pages of correspondence she had sent to Mo during their time in jail. Even after planning her trip meticulously, going to the airport, and discovering that the government had been watching her for months, Jaylin still believed they were in it together. Calling Mo my Habibi, using the Arabic word for my sweetheart, Jalin wondered whether he was thinking about cooperating with prosecutors to please non-Muslims who are offended that we should dare consider leaving to fight against them. At various points, she encouraged him not to present false testimony, that they were going overseas to do an expose on what she called the un-Islamic states. She wrote, Hey, remember what our plan was, don't you? In jail, she said, I often find myself going back and forth in my mind about ISIS and Al-Qaeda. She pushed Mo to keep studying. Before you say ISIS does not represent Islam, I challenge you to read Sharia or Hadith Sunnah, she wrote. But she also felt guilty. I know you felt I ruined your life completely, she wrote. I did. I ruined yours, mine, our families. I single-handedly screwed up everything that could possibly go wrong. When Jaylin's lawyer brought the letters to a meeting with her in prison, proving Mo had betrayed her, Jaylin broke down. Sweet said in court. She pled guilty roughly three weeks after Mo. The undercover FBI employees in Mississippi didn't just sit by and watch as the couple's planning escalated. They answered questions as the couple developed their scheme, providing details about travel, logistics, and what ISIS is like. They expressed an interest to go, said Freeze. We provided some basic options and then they responded. The undercover agents gave Jaylin and Mo several chances to back away from their plan, he said, and yet the couple kept going. I don't think we overstepped, and the courts didn't see it that way either. A non-lawyer might see this as a form of entrapment, but legally speaking it's not, just as Freeze pointed out. To argue entrapment, a defence attorney would not only have to prove that Jaylin and Mo never would have gone without the FBI's encouragement— he would also have to show they had no predisposition to travel overseas. Terrorism suspects who consciously agree to commit criminal acts, no matter how theoretical, tend not to win in court with these claims. Entrapment is just a high bar generally, and it's particularly high in terrorism cases, said Karen Greenberg, the director of Fordham Law School's Center on National Security. In all likelihood, Jaylin and Mo both fared better by pleading guilty than they would have if they'd gone to trial, where the government almost always wins. If you do go to trial, the penalty is immense, said Greenberg. Of all the sentences that have been given out in ISIS cases to date, the lowest involved a defendant who cooperated with prosecutors. The highest was awarded to someone who went to trial. The frequent guilty pleas mean the public rarely gets a close look at the FBI's methods. Not going to trial means key details about the FBI's operations never come out, because the findings from the discovery phase are never released. In Jaylin and Moe's case, this might have included a fuller transcript of their exchanges with the FBI. 
There's still a lot you won't find out because the government will say it's classified, said Greenberg, but there's an awful lot that does come out, and one of the things that can get litigated in open court is the role of the FBI. At the last minute, Jaylin's lawyer introduced her mental health as a new factor in the case. Roughly two weeks before Jaylin was sentenced in August 2016, Sweet submitted a 30-page report, paid for by Jaylin's parents, that suggested there was reason for concern about her mental state at the time of her decision to join ISIS. She was in trouble, hurting herself physically, said Sweet at the hearing. She was in trouble, with her grades dropping, isolation and other things. Leonce also tried to take the blame for Jaylin's actions. With me gone, it took a toll on my daughter, he said. She was lost. I'm sure there are other servicemen that might not be in a federal court with their kids, but it causes a problem. Today is my day with my child. At a previous hearing, when Leonce heard that Jaylin had celebrated the deaths of servicemen in Chattanooga, FBI Special Agent Stephen Thomason told me he broke down crying. Clay Joyner, the lead prosecutor, dismissed the claims about Jaylin's mental health, noting that the psychiatrist's report found Jaylin had a lifelong pattern of manipulation and lying. Many of her problems were typical of American college students, Joyner argued. Depression, the issues regarding adolescent brain development, sometimes the absence of a parent, a strict mother. Another prosecutor, Robert H. Norman, pushed back on Leonce's plea for leniency. We also have to face the fact that most people who leave their kids behind to serve overseas don't end up in a courtroom with a child charged with betraying her country and wanting to join an organisation such as ISIS, he said. Young people in America have a rich tradition of feeling lost and trying to find themselves. Some have escaped to the solitude of the Alaskan wilderness, taken up heroin, or plunged into the seedy depths of Reddit. Jaylin and Mo, however, managed to self-destruct in a way that's both politically charged and morally horrifying. Grasping blindly at their futures, they scratch the country's most pressing anxiety. What to do about the fear that we will never, ever be safe? There may have been another path for Jaylin and Mo. When the government or its partners identify ISIS sympathisers online, especially people without criminal backgrounds like these two, they could intervene and deter crimes from being committed. This is the approach that has risen to the top of the heap of counterterrorism issues domestically right now. Greenberg said, what's known in the counterterrorism world as off-ramps. In Europe, where countries have greater problems with fighters returning from battlefields in Syria and Iraq compared with the United States, programs vary. The governments of the UK, the Netherlands and France have set up hotlines where friends and families can call in to report suspicious behaviour. Other programs involve a mentor, someone involved in their mosque, for example, or a mental health professional who steps in and takes the would-be ISIS sympathiser under his wing. They might read articles together and critique propaganda found online. The goal is to divert the ISIS sympathisers, who are often young, from taking action. While there are several models being tested in the United States, including a nascent program in Minnesota featured in Wired in January, none has really taken hold as the answer, Greenberg said. The legality of such programs is complicated. How could investigators share information about suspects gleaned through classified Pfizer investigations? What would happen to community partners if one of their mentees decided to blow up a mall? 
The current political climate presents still more challenges to off-ramp-style programs. Community groups in Michigan and Minnesota have recently rejected grants from the federal government to work on countering extremism, citing the Trump administration's antagonism of the American Muslim community. Recruiting community partners might become increasingly difficult for an administration that campaigned on the promise to fight, not deter, radical Islamic extremism. For its part, the FBI sees J. Lynn and Moe's case as a lesson about the intensity of the ISIS threat. This just goes to show that ISIS can reach into small-town America in Starkville, Mississippi, said Thomason. They can reach out on social media and engage two students from very middle-class families. The worlds they left behind in Starkville and Vicksburg have lurched on. The spring after Moe was arrested, his mother, Lisa, died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Then, last December, another member of the Daklala family died, Takwa. The two-year-old daughter of Moe's older brother, Abdullah, suffocated in her sleep when a heater malfunctioned in her bedroom. She was just old enough to have met her young uncle before he was arrested. Oda now lives alone in the little house on Herbert Street, once filled with his wife and children and grandchild. When I visited in January, Jalen's clothes and backpack were still there, stuffed in a trash bag on the back porch. Oda said she had her things mailed to him and Lisa after she was arrested, rather than sending her possessions back home. Oda had trouble sleeping and cried often in the months after Moe's arrest, he told me. He talks about Islam with an almost numerological obsession and spends hours on the phone with an imam friend who lives a few hours north. He spent a long time searching for a solution to his son's situation. He wrote to President Obama and considered reaching out to former U.S. Senator Trent Lott, whose son, Chet, he said he once tutored. Now he has resigned. We live in this life according to the plan of God, he told me, but I feel there are traps everywhere. Moe tutors fellow inmates in English and math at his prison home in Jessup, Georgia. He exercises a lot and reads sci-fi and he's thinking about learning a trade, maybe air conditioning repair or electrical work. One thing he appreciates about prison, he told me, is practicing Islam. Instead of watching videos alone in a campus apartment with his girlfriend or memorizing verses under the watchful eye of his father, he feels he has a community. I meet about 10 to 15 Sunni Muslims here on a weekly basis, he told me in a letter. The first big lesson I learned from my Muslim brothers is that my knowledge about faith is at an all-time low. Just reading about the basics of Islam and the oneness of God is a big change compared to listening to it from my parents and community that I grew up in. A few months into our correspondence, he started signing off as Muhammad rather than Mo. The Beautiful Islamic name Oda was so proud to have given his youngest son. Vicksburg is mostly silent about Jalin. The Army Corps of Engineers sustains the town economically, meaning many of Jalin's closest friends and mentors are afraid they'll lose their jobs if they talk about the girl they once knew who was convicted of terrorism charges. There's this undercurrent, and it's not just among my work friends, that anything positive you say about Jalin could label you as an ISIS sympathizer or something like that, wrote Will Ballard, her robotics teammate, in an email. After her arrest, well, it was like she had died, practically. She committed a crime and is paying the price for it, but I don't think she deserves to be entirely forgotten.
Kaylin Young's senior year at Warren Central High School started just days after her sister was arrested. Jalen refused to see her until February 2016, after spending six months in jail. I just couldn't, I can't handle it, she told the court. But Kaylin got through, winning a small college scholarship from a local Vicksburg club. The Youngs proudly placed a Southern Miss Class of 2020 sign on their front lawn. Benita, whom Jaylin closely resembles, told me her daughter is planning to share her story once she's reunited with her family. As of now, that won't be until 2026. Although Jaylin said during her sentencing that she hoped for a platform to tell others about the decision that led me here and dissuade those who are considering the same path, she is not speaking with the press. My daughter just wants to do her time and be left alone, Leonce told me. She don't want to talk to no news media. They already painted a picture for her. Leonce has a plan for his daughter. When I retire, I'm going to get a house out there in the country, he told me. I'm going to go into town and get what I've got to get for the month and go back home, and we're just going to live our days. Jaylin's incarceration is a hard pill to swallow, but after you swallow the pill, you realize that your child is still alive and to hell with the rest of it, he said. All this is God's work. In an alternate world, one where Jaylin and Mo had really been talking to ISIS recruiters and actually made their way to Syria and truly joined the Islamic State, the young pair might have gotten involved in violence. They might very well be dead by now. The FBI theoretically made them safer by apprehending them, and Mo and Jaylin have both said they're glad they were not successful in their attempt to run away. But it's also impossible to know what the world would look like had the FBI not intervened. Perhaps Jaylin and Mo would have found a real recruiter and made their journey. Perhaps they would have abandoned the idea, a passing, absurd notion born of unhappiness and anxiety, corrected with time and space and the natural force of inertia. Or perhaps they could have been found by Muslim community members who wanted to help, not prosecute them. Maybe they'd still be together, somewhere in Mississippi, learning about Islam and figuring out where they belong. If you enjoyed this production, find the best long-form articles read aloud in the Autumn app, available now for iPhone.